stretch or, or something like that. But we have a little bit of time to cover a lot of ground. And I want for you guys to practice some of the things that we're learning before you go, which means we'll probably get in a whole lot less teaching than, than I could give, but it will be useful, hopefully, to you to take with you. Last night, we started with the first bookend of discipleship, and that was found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, where Jesus called his first disciples. And we learned about what it means to be a disciple, or what the word discipleship means. And what did we say that it was? What is discipleship? A teacher-student relationship. And what kind of relationship? A relationship of transformation. And that's where we started. So we're going to start this afternoon with the second bookend, and that's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. So we start in verses 18 to 20 in chapter 4, and we're going to end up in verses 18 to 20 in Matthew 28. This is the other bookend of discipleship. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And you'll see up there, I have it on the screen, where it says, Matthew 4, 18 to 20, Jesus said to his disciples after he called them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? So he's inviting inviting them to a transformational process to become something that he makes them into. And we go through the entire book of Matthew, and we, we see so many beautiful gems of discipleship, but we're skipping here just so that we can get the context in which we're operating. And here we go. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. You may be familiar with this passage. In fact, this particular portion of Scripture has a title. Do you know what that title is? Did somebody say it? The Great Commission. Yes, the Great Commission. So, let's see, where should we start? I'll start reading actually in verse 16. This is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus had agreed with his disciples that after all this had happened, that they were supposed to meet together in a special place. They had designated a place to meet. And so the disciples go there to meet with Jesus, to see if he's going to show up. And it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Notice there are eleven, because we've lost one somewhere in the story here. That's Judas, by the way. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Is that interesting? When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What do you think was happening there with them? That they saw Jesus, they understood that he had been resurrected from the dead, that their hopes and dreams were not crushed and gone, yet somehow still, when they're meeting with Jesus, some doubted. Do you think it's possible to experience doubt in the presence of God? And how does Jesus deal with that? 
<laughs> Let's see what he says to them. And by the way, realize that they, the ones who were doubting were the worshipers. They were his disciples. And who else? We don't know. Some. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we started with the passage about Jesus calling people to be disciples. And then he did what he promised. He said, I will make you fishers of men. And now in his final words with his disciples, as he's getting ready to ascend into the heavens, he gives them this commission. In response to their worship and their doubt, he gives these words of encouragement. And it starts with, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now why in the world is that important? Didn't Jesus always have it? Did he always have all authority? Why is this encouraging? Why would Jesus say this to the disciples who are doubting? Anybody have an idea? To remind them that he's in connection with heaven as well. He could say like all power on earth and obviously heaven as well. He's trying to remind them that he has heavenly connection. Anybody else? Well, I'd like to take us back to the very beginning, to Genesis again. We go, we go back to Genesis. Why do we do that? Because this is where we understand what happened at the cross. Because that's where things got broken. So when we, in order to understand how things got fixed, we have to understand how they got broken. So when God created the world, we read that he made mankind in his image, and he gave them what over the earth? Dominion. Dominion over the earth. And Adam and Eve's job was to rule over the earth and represent the authority and the image of God here on this planet. It was a gift that he gave them. It was a charge that he gave them, a responsibility. And he gave it to them permanently. Somebody is getting ahead. And that's good. But something happened. The enemy took that authority through deception. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's making a big statement. Because Adam and Eve had authority to exercise over the earth that was given to them by God. They lost that authority through deception to the enemy of God. And the enemy of God actually believed that he had a right to that authority on earth because he earned it or won it or however in his gamble. <laughs> he was given authority. And you know, many times in the Bible, even Jesus himself calls, refers to the devil as what? The ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. So where was it that Jesus had lost authority or that God's authority had been lost? in the Garden of Eden, right here on our planet. 
So God always had authority in heaven. He always had authority in heaven. But what he did when he came as a human being, now who did God give authority over the earth to? Adam and Eve. And what race are they a part of? The human race. So authority over the earth was given as a gift to which race? The human race. How could it be rightfully taken back? Through a human being. That's right. It belongs to the human race. So Jesus came as a human being to restore God's authority on the earth through humanity. And he was able to do it through his life, death, and resurrection. When Jesus stands in front of his disciples, when they were worshiping and doubting, he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Isn't that good news? The rightful authority, God-given authority of humankind was taken back for humanity by Jesus Christ. Is that good news? I believe it was good news for the disciples too. And it is in the context of that good news that he says, therefore, right, therefore, what does it mean that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? means Jesus wins, right? He's in charge. He's the king. And there is no mistaking now that the ruler of darkness or the prince of darkness is no longer the ruler of this world. But because that prince thinks that he has a right to it, he's continuing to fight. But the universe looks on and sees that Jesus has rightfully taken it back for humanity. And that is a good news. That is really good news. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Job. At the very beginning of that book, a funny scene is included where the heavenly courts are coming together with the judges of the world and the representatives. And who is there? Satan. Satan. And who is he representing? The earth. Why is he there representing the earth? Well, because he has been given authority over the earth. So imagine in that scene, who is the representation in heaven for the earth? Satan. Do you know what that name means? The accuser. The accuser stands as our heavenly representative in the heavenly court. <laughs> Not good. Not good at all. But when Jesus comes, his name is Yeshua. That's the opposite of the accuser. You know what it means? Yeshua HaMashiach, the Savior. The Savior. And now, what does he say? I haven't ascended yet to my Father, but he ascends to the Father. And we know in the book of Revelation, in the heavenly scenes, who is on the throne? Who is on the throne? Jesus is on the throne. The Lamb is on the throne. And what does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So who is now standing in the heavenly throne room on our behalf? The Savior. Amen. Not the accuser, but the Savior. And that reality is true no matter what we see happening on this earth. No matter what we see. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you see these scenes flashing back between the heavenly scenes and the earthly scenes. And there's a huge contrast between those scenes, isn't there? And I think that that is there just to remind us that the scenes on earth are not the heavenly reality. 
that no matter what's going on here, we should never forget that Jesus is our heavenly representative now. And that no matter what the devil can paint down here, that reality exists. And that's the reality that Jesus is bringing his disciples' attention to. And he says, and because of that, therefore, and the whole Great Commission now is based upon what? The authority of Jesus Christ. The presence of Jesus Christ. And didn't we say that he's the master? Right? Jesus' identity is the reason that we can now, therefore. And this is what he says to do. And this is a beautiful formula for making disciples. And what I love about this is he says, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So what did Jesus promise he would do to his disciples when he called them? I will make you. And now, after he has completed his earthly ministry, what does he say to his disciples? You make. I have made you. Now you make. We follow in the footsteps of our teacher, of our master. And that's what a discipleship relationship is that the student would become like the master. So much so that if someone saw you walking by, they might mistake you for the master. You make. You see why these are the bookends of discipleship? Because from the beginning to the end, it's a transformational process. And we join our master in making more disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here's the formula for discipleship. What is it that he tells us to do in order to make disciples? He says, go and make disciples... Of who? All nations. That means everyone, just in case you wondered. And what does he say, how does he say we are to do that? Okay. Number one. Baptizing, and what's the second thing that he says to do? teaching. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is a formula for making disciples. Now before we go on, I want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about here, and we're going to paint an interesting picture. Yes? Well, I'm following the scripture. Isn't that interesting? So are we doing it what do you think? What do you think? These are wonderful questions, by the way. Thank you for asking. 
What do you think? I'm reading the scripture. That's the order. So let's look at it. Yes. So I think this is really important for us to pause for a moment because a lot of times we do practice baptism as a graduation, don't we? We practice it as a graduation. When in reality, it is a symbol of what? A birth. A birth. So a lot of times we practice it as a graduation when in reality it is a symbol of birth. And we actually tell people it's a symbol of birth, but we still practice it as a graduation. So let's just think about that. So I, I don't want to, let's keep going because I think the scripture can help us. I think the scripture can help us. Baptizing and teaching. So when we think of baptizing, automatically what image enters our mind? Okay, we've got a pool of water. In fact, we'll be celebrating a baptism this afternoon. We picture water and a pastor and the candidate, and robes, what else? We picture this prayer, ever seen that one, right? And then the dunking. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, we understand that baptism, this word baptizing literally means to immerse or to submerge. So we practice baptism the biblical way all the way down, right? Yes? Thank you. All of these comments are good. And it's better to have them out there in the conversation as we're going through this so that we can frame our thoughts. So I appreciate that sharing very much. Um, let's keep looking and see if we can see this in another way. Because we're talking about our traditional view of baptism, aren't we? And I kind of alluded already to the fact that this word is actually a transliterated Greek word. We don't this is not really an English word. They took the Greek word and just made it into an English word. So there are actually two words in the Greek, and I'm not going to go deep in Greek, but this is important for us to learn, okay? Th there are two words in Greek that mean immersion or submersion, okay? One is this word here, baptizo. Recognize it? This is where we get our English word for baptism. And the other one is a derivative of that, bapto. So the one that's used here is this one here, baptizo, and it means to submerge or to immerse completely. So I want to ask you right now, in your Bible, what is it that Jesus is telling his disciples to baptize people in? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, how do we traditionally incorporate this into our baptismal service? Okay, we pronounce it as part of the prayer. 
But I'd like to suggest that that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay? Because many, many, many times, baptism by water is mentioned in the scripture. Baptizing in water. Also mentioned in the scripture is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. In this particular place, it says baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that is what we are to be immersing people in. Now, listen, we symbolize that with the symbol of water baptism. Do we understand in this room today that water baptism is a symbol of something greater? Is it the water that transforms the life? No. It is a symbol of what Jesus is talking about right here. And we're going to look at it so that we can understand beyond the symbol. We love the symbol of baptism. It's beautiful. It always chokes me up to be there with somebody is getting baptized. It's an amazing step that people take, and it's a beautiful symbol that we practice. But let's make sure that we remember it is a symbol of something greater. So uh, I did a little research, and I found a very interesting little story that helped me understand the difference between these two words in Greek. So here's the little, the little historical illustration that I came upon. It is um, an archaeological illustration where a ancient, an ancient recipe was found by a, a, a physician writer named Nysander. He was a poet, he was a writer, from about 200 BC. And they found this document, and it's a recipe for making pickles. And it uses these two words in the recipe so that we can get a very clear picture about what each of these two words mean. Now, both of them mean to submerge completely, to immerse. And here's what Nysander says in his pickle recipe. He says, first, you take the vegetable and you bapto it in boiling water. So what would we say? You dip it, right? You bapto it in boiling water. You put it in the boiling water. This is to prepare the vegetable for the pickling process. So has it been immersed? Yes, it has been immersed. Then he says, once you bapto it in the boiling water, then you baptizo it in the brine solution. Okay? You bapto it in the boiling water, and then you baptizo it in the brine solution. Which one of these brings about change? Baptizo. Right? The bapto simply prepares the vegetable for transformation. The bapto simply prepares the vegetable for transformation. Which one do you think we practice in our churches? Water baptism, I would say it's safe to say, is more representative of bapto. It's temporary, it's symbolic, and it prepares the vegetables, dare we say, for transformation. What is the brine solution 
that we are to be baptizing, baptizoing people in, according to this passage of Scripture. Let's just stick right to the Scripture. What does it say? We're going to baptizo them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What on earth does that mean? Well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? What does the name represent? That's your identity, character. So what Jesus is saying, here's the first step in making disciples. We get hung up on water baptism because that's what we practice as a symbol. Let's not get too hung up on that because I don't think that's what we're talking about. That's a bapto. We can practice bapto, I suppose, however we feel like. But baptizo, we're going to be baptizoing people in the name or the character of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, immersing them in the character of God. This is the first step in the disciple-making process, that we will immerse people in the character of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A long time, right? And I think that's a very important point, and I'll tell you why. For several years, I was able to teach in um, an academy for their baptismal preparation class for academy students. So we would teach one in the fifth grade, and then we would teach one again in high school. And I experienced something that I felt was extremely tragic. By the time I would teach the high schoolers class, and I always had them write just a half sheet of an essay about their experience with God, whether or not they had been baptized, you know, all of this, just to kind of get a picture of where they were, because they were basically required to go through this little course that we offered. And I can't tell you how many times I would cry over these essays as young people, as young as 14, 15, 16 years old, had already felt like their chances with God were lost. Because they had been baptized when they were younger, and they had continued to fail, to sin, to be human, and they felt that the power of God wasn't strong enough to change them, and they gave up already. At that young age, they felt that They were out of God's reach because their baptism, their water baptism, was supposed to transform them, and they woke up the next day and they were still themselves. That's a tragedy. When our young people think that if they sin after their baptism that there's no hope for them. And maybe I'm talking to one of you in this room right now because of the way we have perceived baptism, like it's supposed to change our lives. But is the dip where the transformation happens? Or is it in the sustained immersion in the transforming solution that changes us? Should we expect and should we ever teach someone to expect an instantaneous transformation? No, I mean, believe me, Repentance means that we're doing a 180. So I don't want to say that 
oh no, we, we can continue to sin well into our mature Christian lives on purpose and take advantage of God's grace. I am not saying that. Because repentance by nature means that you are facing one direction and you stop and you turn around. Bam, that's repentance. That's what it means to repent. That you're going in one direction and you turn around and you go in another direction. So obviously repentance is, is something that usually happens before baptism. Right? Because you can be over here immersed in all kinds of things. I'm immersed in my life, my career. I'm immersed in bad habits and addictions. I'm immersed in worldliness and self-love. I'm immersed in all kinds of traps over here. And does that change me? <laughs> yeah, well, it does. It flavors my life with all of those things. But Jesus says, stop. Repent. And be baptized. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come and be immersed in the character of God. Come and be transformed in the flavor of God. And that invitation is open. And if we decide to respond to it, that's immediately when the transformation can start. By being immersed in the character of God. So how in the world do we get immersed in the character of God? Well, there's one way, right? This is the book about his character. This is the book about his love. This is a book about the greatest expression of his love, his son Jesus. We can learn about the character of God here. We can grow to understand his character here. How else can we immerse people in the character of God? Do you think if the character of God is coming out of me, that would be a helpful thing? Yes, that would be a helpful thing. If I am in the room and the character of God is in the room because of that, wouldn't that be nice? That's a big part of immersing people. Wherever we are, God should be there if we are his people. Isn't that true? When God created Adam and Eve, what did he create them to do? He created them in his image. That's what we talked about in church service today. You and I were created in God's image. Do you know what that means? That means when somebody looks at us, they should see a reflection of God. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. And he has. And he does. And he will. Could we say that faith is the lid on the jar that keeps us immersed in the transforming solution? Right? Faith is the lid on the jar that keeps us in so that that transformation process can continue to happen. Now, I love that I found this at the dollar store. It's a pickle. It's a Christmas pickle. I have never heard of a Christmas pickle, but apparently it's a German tradition that they would hide the Christmas pickle on the tree, 
And whoever could find that pickle first on Christmas morning would get a special gift. Isn't that interesting? Now, needless to say, when I saw this at the dollar store, I bought every single one that they have. And then I went to the other dollar store and bought every single one that they have. And I've since then given most of those away. Oh, probably about 50. Yeah, I bought about 50 of these. And yes, they were a dollar a piece. But it was worth it to me. Because, you know, I gave these to the third grade class at Fresno Adventist Academy. Because I'm their classroom chaplain. And I get to go and have a relationship with them and give worships to them and, and encourage them. And, and all of them now have a pickle. And guess what I told them about this pickle? Can you guess? Yes. I told them that this, that's them. That this is a representation of who they are when they're immersed in the character of God. And not to forget it. Right? We are pickles. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means to be pickled, transformed, immersed for transformation in his character. And that means we have to not immerse ourselves in all kinds of other things. Right? Because we are flavored by whatever we are immersed in. Ever had them jalapeno pickled? Oh, they're so good. You can have garlic, jalapeno, whatever. There's some good flavors that you can put in there, right? But we need to be careful which ones we put in there because they will flavor who we are. And Jesus says, flavor your lives, be transformed. Doesn't this go right along with what he said? I will make you fishers of men. I will transform you. Come and be immersed in my character and you will be transformed. And that's how we make other disciples. We immerse them in the character of God. And you know what? When we do that, do we have to beg them to give God their attention? No. They run to God. When we love people like God loves people, when we bring the character of God into this ungodly world, people notice and they want it. It's the power of Jesus for sure. Remember, we can change our behavior all we want. But unless we're plugged into the source, it will deplete our energy until we are no longer to behave that way. We must stay plugged in in order to continue to emit the qualities of God's character. And that's what this baptism is all about. When we're creating disciples, we're making disciples in the way of our master. We first are immersed in the character of God, and then when we come into the world, guess what happens? Others are immersed in the character of God. It's a natural process. People getting immersed by people who have been immersed. We bring the character of God. Wherever we are, there his character is. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them... And somebody already pointed this out. We're not just teaching. We're teaching something. It says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Anybody get a little freaked out by that? 
<laughs> it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and especially when you think of what is the best way to teach someone else obedience? <laughs> Start with the parent. Okay, so if you are doing one thing and telling somebody the other thing, which is one they're most likely to do? Though, you know, they're going to do what you're doing, not what you're saying. The best way to teach obedience is to practice obedience. So if in making disciples we're supposed to immerse people in the character of God, number one, that implies what? We are immersed in the character of God. And if we're supposed to be teaching them obedience, that implies what? We are practicing obedience. Yes. In your 14-year-olds that were lost, is there any correlation between them being told something and the parents doing something else and it can be you absolutely confused as to what they're supposed to do? Sometimes, but more likely than not, it was that they were told that they would live a new life after they were baptized, and they were told maybe that they needed to do that on their own power and then they knew they couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't do it. And then they said, why am I gonna spend my life trying to do something that's impossible? You know, because kids aren't dumb. They're not dumb. Why am I gonna spend my whole life trying to do something that's impossible? That's hopelessness, isn't it? We should tell them ahead of time that it's impossible. And that's the whole point of getting baptized, <laughs> right? It's impossible, get baptized, because only in the name of Jesus can you change. Yes, I told him, well, no wonder you failed. You were using humanity. Teaching obedience. Not just obedience, but obedience to what? Jesus says, everything I have commanded you. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> That's a lot, isn't it? Let's see if we can simplify it a little bit. And let's use the scripture to do that. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 22. And before you read ahead... Let's just talk a little bit about obedience, laws, commandments. You know, we have some pretty important ones that we value a lot, don't we? And in fact, it's a message that we have for the rest of the world. A beautiful message. A message that reveals the character of God. And we all have our pet laws, commandments, and things that make us feel pretty righteous. Or special or important, don't we? And that's not new. In fact, the Pharisees and the Sadducees used to argue all the time about which was the most important. And so they decided one time that they would test Jesus. They loved doing that, by the way. And I don't know why they didn't learn their lesson that testing Jesus is not a good idea. Because his questions are always better than theirs. Always. So let's see what Jesus has to say in this passage in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. See, because the Sadducees and the Pharisees were kind of rival groups in their religious leadership 
They were rival groups, so they're like, <laughs> Jesus embarrassed the Sadducees. Let's go see if we can, you know, make ourselves look good. So that's what they did. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now remember, we're talking about teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. That's what Jesus says. So I'd be interested to know what Jesus says, wouldn't you? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is the clincher right here. Are you ready for it? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. How much of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands? All. So are we now getting to teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you? So what are the, what's the greatest commandment that, that Jesus identifies? greatest commandment is love. Number one, love of God. Love for God. And do you know why that's important? Because that's his character, isn't it? What does the Bible tell us? God is love. That's his identity. That's who he is. Not only that, what else does the Bible tell us? We love because he first loved us. Where do we learn how to love? From God. So, first of all, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second, he says, is like it. Is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. So we're talking about love, and then he says, but don't worry, I'm not throwing away all the law and the prophets. He says, they're right here. They're right here, hanging on these two commands. Every other command is subject to these two. So which one are you going to practice all of the rest from? Love. Every bit of the law and the prophets, every command that Jesus has ever given is centered on love. And that is the motive through which we will practice obedience. That's the motive through which we practice obedience to the rest of the teachings. Right? And I said something earlier today that is so important. The extent to which we understand the teachings of Jesus is the extent to which we can see the rest of Scripture as his teachings. Right? We need to start with the teachings of Jesus. From there, we will understand how to see the rest of the Scripture as his teachings. Isn't that cool? So, Jesus says, in order to make disciples, you are going to first immerse people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to immerse them 
for transformation. We're not baptizing people, we're baptizoing them. We're sustained immersion for transformation in the character of God. And then, through a loving obedience, we are teaching them to also obey. If our obedience is based in anything else besides this word, I'm going to take a big risk here. Don't gasp. If our obedience is based in anything else besides this word, it is not true obedience. Okay? If we are motivated by any other factor in our obedience, it is not true obedience. True obedience to the teachings of Jesus are hanging on the commandments of love. That means without those commandments being the support for the rest of it, they fall flat. They're hanging there like fruit ready to be picked. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Therefore, our obedience must be centered and based and anchored in love, love for God and love for each other. How compelling do you think that's going to be to the world? Is that compelling? I'm compelled by love. In fact, Paul writes, for Christ's love compels us. Is that what compels you? Christ's love compels us. And then Jesus says something really important. After he tells us, here's how you make disciples. Go do it. Immerse them in my character. Teach them to obey out of love by your own example of loving obedience. And then he says something that's really wonderful. And surely, I am with you always till the very end of the age. I am with you always. Do you know what that means? It means that yours and my pickling process can continue while we're pickling others and helping pickle others. He says, I am with you always. My presence is with you always. The brine solution, the transforming power is with you always. Is that good news? I am with you always. So whose presence is important here? Jesus. And whose power is important here? Didn't we start with the authority of Jesus? We start with his power, we end with his presence. And in between the power and the presence of Jesus Christ, disciples are made. That's cool, right? So that means that our discipleship journey, we spent a lot on our own personal connection to God on Friday and, and this morning. And now we're moving to the end result that God is wanting. The end result isn't just for us selfishly to say, ooh, blessings of God be poured out on me. God loves you, but guess what? He loves all those people out there too. Yes, he loves all them too. And he loves them as much as he loves you and for the lost ones, his heart aches even a little more for them than for you. So what do we need to give God when we call ourselves his disciples? Do we just give him our devotional time? Well, most of us don't even do that on a consistent basis. Do we give him lip service and religious practices? 
do we give him ourselves to be transformed and to go out into the world reflecting his image and immersing people in his character? And by the way, we're not going to do it perfectly. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at me, follow me, but we're both focused on him. <laughs> right? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Does that put some responsibility on us? Does it overwhelm you a little bit? Maybe a little bit. But remember this, Jesus says, I will never, never, never. He says, surely. He emphasizes it. I will never leave you or forsake you. You are not doing this in your own power. You are not done being transformed. He's not going to leave you. It's not like you jump in the pickle jar and jump out. You are there. His presence is there. And the end of the story is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, even though here it doesn't always look like that because the enemy is still alive and well. One day it will be finished, all the way done. The victory is won already. That work is finished. Jesus said so on the cross. It is finished. The victory is won. He is the king. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him, but the enemy is not going to give up that easy. He wants to convince you, and he wants to convince me, that the battle is still ongoing. So he continues to show the results of his kingship on this planet. And as long as people are willing to let him be the ruler, we will continue to see those results until Jesus finishes it. And I hope that that's soon, don't you? I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of seeing pain and suffering and whatever, but the good news is Jesus is on the throne. He is Lord. Do you know what the gospel is? And I've, there are different people who have different ways to say this is what the gospel is. If you've ever heard Elizabeth Talbot speak, she says, yeah, she says woo-hoo. She says that you can say the gospel in two words. And what does she say? Jesus, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Woohoo! That's the gospel in three words. Jesus wins, woohoo. And I've also heard it said that the gospel is one in one word, the gospel in one word. Can you guess what it is? Jesus. The gospel in one word is Jesus. The gospel in three words is Jesus is Lord. And do you know why that's important? The reason that we talked about with the authority, right? If Jesus is Lord, it means he's on the throne. It's the same thing as saying Jesus wins. He's got the authority. He's Lord. Jesus is Lord. Is that good news? Now, I've also heard people say this, that the gospel is... And that is good news, too. But this is what I think. God is love. I believe that, don't you? What proof do you have? Jesus. Thank you. What proof do you have that God is love? But you could be gone tomorrow. Right. So God is love is good news. But the proof 
that we have is right here. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is eternal proof right here that God is love. And what has the enemy of God been trying to tell us from the beginning of time? That God is not love. And God said, I think we'll finish this argument right now. Jesus is Lord. Good news. So this is all good news. Jesus is the best news that we can ever have. And it's not even that he is our Savior. The fact that he is our Savior is because he is Lord. Because he has the authority to be our Savior. Jesus is the King, he is the Lord, and because of that, he is our Savior. Praise God. Jesus is Lord. He's the King. He is our heavenly representative. And Jesus saves. He doesn't accuse. Isn't that good news? So that's the everlasting gospel. Jesus is Lord. That is finished, people. That's done. The Lamb is on the throne. Now we're just waiting for him to come back and finish it all. So, I want to give us an idea of how we can practice discipleship in our lives. Time is it right now? 3.30. We have plenty of time. This part could get a little bit... We're going to stretch before we go into it, okay? So let's take a five-minute break. We have plenty of time. Take a five-minute break. When that clock says 3.35, we'll all come back together, okay? Stretch, take a drink, get some fresh air. Okay, so everyone should have uh, a form. Yes, you have a little target. You're welcome. Anybody else not get one yet? There's two. Oh, okay. Anybody else need one? She can have one too. Welcome. Put a couple here if you guys want to use those. Okay, so we have a target here. And there probably could be more. In fact, I think I did have one more circle in the middle. So if you want to just draw a smaller one there in the middle, that would be helpful. And what we're going to draw a picture of is our crucial relationships and circles of influence. Okay, our crucial relationships and circles of influence. So, um, Let's just write a list of what some of these might be. Now, obviously, if we're talking in the context of discipleship, there's a crucial relationship, right, between you and Jesus. That should be there, right? Who else? Crucial relationships that you have. Okay, parents, 
family, spouse. I guess that's a pretty crucial one. Kids. What's that? Friends, yes, we can't forget our friends. Any of you have coworkers? Neighbors? We go out further. Okay. Stu- okay, students, church. Yeah, let's let's just include that maybe together. Yeah. Church. That's a pretty critical one, right? Relationships, school. Anybody part of a community? <laughs> outside of your church? Do you know that you're part of a larger community? This building is part of a larger community that exists people outside of this building? Did you know that? And they're not out there, you're part of it. It's not us and them, you're in it. Ah, That's right, service people. Oh, you come across a lot of people in your daily lives, don't you? People that are in your circle of influence. Your circle of influence, which you are the center of. All of these people in your circle of influence. You know what these people are? Potential disciples of Jesus Christ. So how in the world would that happen? So what I would like for you to do, obviously we should have, now these are your relationships. At the center, the most important one is Jesus and you. Now I'm going to give you kind of what it should look like, and then I'm going to ask you on that second circle to fill in your current reality. Okay, so we're going to look at what we think it ought to be, what, what it really should be, and then you're going to do some reflecting and see where your priorities, your relationships are. What is the order? Okay, so Jesus and me, what's the next closest relationship that you have in your intimate circle? Okay, if you're married, it's your spouse. If you're not married, it's your immediate core. Maybe you don't have parents, you're single, maybe it could be your closest knit group of friends, but whoever is in that most intimate core. So we'll just, for the sake of today, we're gonna just use the spousal relationship to depict that very intimate circle. Then, (laughs) right? Now, if you don't have spouse and kids, you can be writing in here, parents, maybe that is your most intimate, influential relationship. You could write BFF, best friend, whoever that intimate person is for you. 
Um, then, once we are finished with our home, our center, we move out to extended family, right? And friends. And maybe even church. This is like our close-knit group. So church could go in here. Then we have coworkers. These are people who are more acquaintances. Maybe you have friendships with coworkers that would maybe move them into one of these more inner circles, but we're just kind of doing a representation here. There's a lot of variables, but we're just going to use this as kind of our center map. Coworkers, neighbors, maybe your service people that you, you may even know their first name. I know my water guy, his name is Bob. He delivers big water bottles. He's a nice guy but I don't know much else about him. He has a couple of kids, I know that. But aside from that, I know that he comes on Thursday. And of course, these circles can, can keep going out, but this is maybe just the, the world and our community. These are people that we might not know, but that we see or we understand that we're, they're part of the group that we're connected to in some way. So you see we're going out. We're going out like this. Now, I love this because my good friend, Pastor Don McLafferty, loves to teach this. And he also has a passion for discipleship. And one thing that he pointed out, and I believe with all my heart, is that in order to love properly in each of these circles, we must have it, it flows from one circle to the next, right? So if I don't have it here, I'm not going to have enough for this circle. And if I don't have it here, I'm not going to have enough for this. It flows from the inside out. So it's important that we get these circles in the right order and that we have them whole and complete in order to have the love that spills from one into the next, into the next, into the next. Have you Yeah, sure. So he's talking about ripples, right? So if you have a big rock that you throw into the water, the bigger the rock, the more pressure you have sending that wave outward. That's kind of the same picture. I like that picture. Thank you. So when this thing is full and overflowing, you don't have to work hard to like pump it into the next layer. It just fills up and overflows. Isn't that a nice picture? So how many of us live in that reality? <laughs> where we have so much love in our relationship with Jesus that we just, our, our spousal relationship is wonderful all the time. Not so much, but this is the concept, right? That the more that we have these layers straight, the more we have to give outside. You'd think that the more we give here, the less I'll have to give the further out I go, but that's not the way it works. 
We live in an upside down kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Where the more I give here, the more I have here, the more I have to give here. The less I have here, the less I have to give outside. So let me just ask you, if things are not great in my home, between me and Jesus, between my spouse or my parents, my kids, my my best friends, if things are not good there, how much am I going to have to give in these outer circles? It's going to be used up quick. And we see the results of it a lot. So I would like for you now to just take a minute or two and take a look at your circles. You can draw more circles in there if you need to. Thinking of your key relationships and your circles of influence and looking at the list that we have here in this order. This is the proper-ish order, okay, where we're going from most intimate, most influence, out to lesser intimate, less influence, where we need to be operating with the love of Christ, the character of God, right, in each one of these circles. The closer it is to us, the more critical it is that we are reflecting the character of God there. So I would like for you just to do some personal reflection and to write in your circles your current reality. Just be honest with yourself. No one, uh, this is for you. This is not a a report card or for you to tell me. You don't owe me any any explanation. Take a look at your life and your relationships and just make a little chart of the order of your priority in intimacy and loving and relating. And if you're wondering how you can measure it, think about the amount of time you spend or how much space in your mind these different groups of people occupy. So the more time or more space they occupy, the closer in you're going to need to put them in your diagram. I love hearing that laughter, knowing it's a moment of realization and shared struggle.
Can I erase the words that are written in here? Now remember, this is not about the feelings you have for people as much as it is about the time commitment that you make to that relationship. The amount of time you give to the demands of that relationship. See above? Oh, okay. Well, good for you, because that's not common. That's not common. I'm going to see if I can be honest about my own circles right now. I'm just going to go from like this last week, okay? You know, I'm certain that my husband is keenly aware of whatever reality I'm going to put on this board. <laughs> Okay, so let's see if I can be honest. And we're talking about time and energy, right? Yeah. That's probably number one. Let's say Jesus comes in there. Church is probably next. That's church for me. <laughs> that's the same. Yeah, that's the same for me. Um, then, probably, are you seeing something missing from this picture? Yeah, me too. And family, I think I would probably mean my, my mom. We talk a lot on the phone. And unfortunately, I think my husband. He's there. He's there. He's there. I remember, I'm trying to be honest with you right now. And I'm talking about the amount of time and attention, the number of hours that have been committed to these groups of people. Um, this is out here is probably friends and community. Well, if you contact me in this circle, you'll get an answer before you get one in this circle. How about that? Okay. So that's, that's pretty honest, I think. Uh, I wouldn't say that that makes me proud. But we need to be honest, don't we, about where we are in our priorities, where our time is being spent, where our emotional energy is being spent. When you so, do you know what this means when you have a picture that looks like this? Somebody's priorities need to change. And I cannot use this as an excuse. 
I cannot use the demands of my life as an excuse. And that is why the number one thing that I say when you are wanting to have a committed discipleship relationship, time alone with God, the first thing you need to do is make an appointment. Make it a habit. Make a plan. Because you won't, if you don't have a plan for Jesus, the kids will beat you, beat him to you. Okay? Amen. If you don't have a plan for Jesus, the kids will beat him to you. Won't they? See, by the time I get to Jesus, I'm already tired. So if, if I'm already tired when I get to Jesus, what am I going off of when I get to work? And if, if I'm still tired by the time I'm done with work and I'm giving stuff to school and family, by the time I get to my spouse, what's going on? Good morning. Good night. <laughs> and that is, a, that is a current reality. It's a current reality. We have time for only crucial conversations. Is that healthy? Mm -mm. So if I, if I don't change this, what's going to happen? It won't be healthy. And each of us has a circle. So look at your circle. Be honest with yourself. And make sure that you understand that when we become disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to make sure our priorities change and reflect our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We have to make sure it's in the right order. Because even though this is good and all these things are good, even reaching out to our community, to the unsaved, to the whatever, I'm telling you, friends, if you don't have all the rest of these in line, you're not going to be giving from the right place, from the right center. Okay. How was that exercise for you? Now, I, just, I really just want you to talk to each other about it for about a minute or two. Get with someone, one or two people. If you're at a table with three, you can join up three. And, and share your circle. Share your joys and your concerns about your circle. And then I'm actually going to ask you just to say a, a quick prayer for each other in regards to that circle. Will you do that? Okay. So how was that experience of sharing with someone else? That's good, isn't it? And that's why community is so important in discipleship, because God created us to be present in each other's lives. So we can't, you know, and also our presence allows him to have a presence in each other's lives. So thank you for taking that opportunity. And unfortunately, we are just about done. I literally, if I could be with you for another two hours, another four hours, we could just keep going. And I would love that. Um, but we are getting close to the end of our time because you guys have a lot going on here at this church. That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, I have to go home, but ah, two hours alone in the car, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> no Legos flying from the back seat. No bickering and fighting going on. Do I have to come back? <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. My husband also, he likes noise, so the radio will always be on. Just up like two notches too loud in the volume. So when I'm by myself, 
I can control the whole environment. It's wonderful. No, we didn't get the house that my husband fell into the pool. I thought, my goodness, if my husband's going to fall in, what's going to happen with my kids? Just, you know, too much, too much worry for me. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Amen. So, I think in our last five minutes, I have time to just introduce you to an idea. Not to really elaborate on it, but to introduce you to an idea that paints a complete picture of the life of a disciple. Okay? And I have arranged this using words that all start with the same letter, just so that it's easier to remember. Yeah, just so that it's easier to remember. So the message, these are the five phases of discipleship. And they're not really phases because you don't necessarily move from one into the next in a linear fashion. Okay? This is more like a spiral where all of these are happening simultaneously to one degree or another. And every time you go around, you can go a little bit deeper or a little bit higher. Right? So that's more like it is that's hard to depict but as you can see it's very integrated and discipleship is the center what is discipleship <laughs> your relationship with Jesus the teacher student relationship so at the very center is your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with Jesus will involve these five main areas okay so number one we have message can you guess what that is? That's the word. That's Jesus himself. That is where you're going to be learning about your teacher, your master. This is your time with God, your exposure to the word in any form. Books, sermons, friends, wherever that message comes in and does what it's supposed to do, which for me is to ignite a passion. That's what the message does. In our discipleship journey, whenever we connect with the message of Jesus Christ, with the gospel, with, with the love of God, that inspires or ignites a passion. It draws us into relationship and it propels us forward in our relationship with God. Then we have membership, and I'm not talking about membership in the local church. I'm talking about membership in the kingdom of heaven. I'm talking about citizenship where you now belong to a new order. And in that phase of our lives, of that part of discipleship, guess what changes? Our priorities, right? So we kind of talked about that a little bit with the circles. This is where we are members, where our community is. This is our connection to family, church, people. The next one is maturity. This is the growth process of discipleship. This is where we move from simply interacting with the Word of God to actually applying it to our daily lives, to navigating the realities of life. It should make a difference as Christians how we navigate our lives, shouldn't it? When crisis hits and when life happens, the fact that we are disciples of Jesus Christ should actually help us out a little bit. It should make us different in those circumstances than if we were not a believer. So that's what maturity is all about. And part of maturity also is mentoring relationships. That we allow others who are ahead of us in the journey to influence us. 
And a big part of maturity also is turning around to those who are behind us and helping them. Because remember, we talk about learning when we teach. That's what being mature is about. And I, one of my favorite definitions of maturity is learning the difference between right and wrong and doing what is right. <laughs> Maturity is about the practice of wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is? It is when you take the knowledge that you have and you use it correctly. That's wisdom. And that's maturity. And it's a process of growth, right? So you can get information and knowledge, but in and of itself, that's not useful until you put it into practice. Then we have ministry. The way that I define ministry has nothing to do with being a pastor or a Bible worker or a teacher or anything else. It goes back to the very simplest form of the word, in our, even in our Webster's English Dictionary, that ministry is service. Ministry is service or the distribution of something. Okay, What are we distributing as disciples of Jesus Christ? Did somebody just say information? Oh, just... Put a knife in my heart. We, we, are, we are distributing information. We are kind of servicing the, the gospel message. But remember, that's in the message part. Both receiving and giving. That's there. In ministry, we are distributing the love of God. We are ambassadors of the love of God on earth. So ministry, to me, is simply about serving mankind. And we can do that in two circles. Number one, within our faith community. Pastor, could you use more people in service within your church? Amen. Amen. And by the way, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you're not serving in your church, you may need to do some evaluating. Also, what other group do we serve? We serve within our faith community and outside of our faith community. There's a lot of people that have needs that are greater than your needs. You have needs too. But don't worry, someone else is going to be serving your needs. If they're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's their job. They'll look for your need and they'll meet it in the name of Jesus. And your job is to look for other needs to be met. And then we have mission. Can you guess what that is? That is sharing the gospel message with others. That is using your personal influence and your testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ to spark message, right, that passion for someone else. You share the gospel with others. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You yourself are immersed in the message, in community, growing and maturing through connected mentoring relationships. You are serving with your own hands and feet in the community in which you worship and outside in the community that needs love and service. And then you are sharing the gospel message. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want to just quickly go through these, and I think I can do it in two minutes. It'll be fast. You won't be able to write it down, but maybe I can send something to the pastor. Um, the good news is we're working on a, a workbook that we just didn't have ready for this weekend, but we'll have a workbook, and if we get them done, I'll send a box to Pastor Godfrey. Message. This is where the passion is ignited. And here's what happens in this message phase. This is what we want to see for disciples. 
increase authentic connection to Jesus Christ through emphasis on an intimate relationship of transformation over a transfer of information. And we want to increase personal commitment to spending time in the Word of God and understanding the Gospel as good news. Can you guess where I've focused a lot of my attention on this weekend? We've spent a lot of time here in the message phase, haven't we? But it's critical. Without this message, the rest of it falls apart. This is the motivating factor. This is where the passion for Jesus Christ is ignited. Right here. Then, we have membership. And this phase is intended, or the, the outcome of it, is that it renews personal commitment within community. Renews personal commitment within community. This is what should happen in the life of a disciple who's growing in this area. You should see an increase in commitment and involvement with community and stewardship in the kingdom of heaven. You should also see an increase in the quality of relationships within the faith community. Could we use an increase in the quality of relationships within our faith community? I think we could. And stewardship in the kingdom. You know what that means? Your priorities change so that you manage the resources entrusted to you primarily for the kingdom of heaven and not for your personal gain. And the resources that we're talking about are time, treasure, that's your money, your talent, your temple, that's your body, your health, right? And then we add a fifth one with our stewardship initiative here at the conference, which is Terra. That stands for the earth. Did God make us stewards of the earth? Yes, he did. We have a responsibility to make sure that part of our stewardship within the kingdom of heaven is care for nature and for the earth. Then we have the maturity. This part of discipleship is the part that we all experience that helps to lay the foundation for framing and navigating the realities of life. Because we can be up in the Bible all we want, and we can be part of a great church community, but if none of that matters when real life happens, we're not growing. It needs to help make it, it needs to make a difference in our lives. We need to be being transformed by the presence of God in our lives. And we need to trust. This is a test of trust, maturity. A test of our trust in God when things just do not look right. Can we, can we increase the reflection of Christ's character in the midst of everyday life? That's what maturity in a disciple's life looks like. And also, I'll sit down because I might be blocking your view. Also, to increase healing and personal growth. That's part of maturing. To increase healing and personal growth because we're all broken, aren't we? And then to increase mentoring and cross-generational relationships. Do you want to know the number one reason that people stay in the church, that young people stay in the church? Relationships, not within their own age group and not with the pastor. A meaningful relationship with an older member of the church one of the number one reasons that young adults between the ages of 18 and 29 stay in the church. A meaningful relationship with someone in the generation ahead of them. The next one is ministry. This is where we get to apply faith to real life in acts of service. This is when the rest of the world gets to see what our faith produces. The fruits of the Spirit. Are the fruits for the tree? To enjoy, 
No, the fruits are for the people around it to enjoy. Love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things belong to God for the enjoyment of the people in our lives. So we want to increase participation in hands-on volunteerism and service within the faith community. And we want to increase commitment and involvement in the greater community for needs-based service and community support. That's what growing in the area of ministry will look like in a disciple's life. Anybody have any room to grow there? And the last one is mission. This is the phase in a disciple's life where you are equipped and inspired to share your faith and influence your peers. Let me just tell you, once the message gets in, you're not going to have any trouble being inspired to do this. You might be scared, though, and you might not know how to do that. And so seeking advice and help and methods and being equipped to get over your fear is very important. You are equipped and inspired to share your faith and influence peers. And in the life of a disciple, this will look like increase in personal commitment to sharing the gospel message with others, especially within your circle of influence. So that means not just sending your dollars overseas or going on a mission trip. It means right here in your own personal circle of influence. And then it would look like increase in your personal relationships outside of your faith community. How many of you have lots and lots of friends that are not Christians or Seventh-day Adventist members of your church? Could you grow in that area? That's what it would look like in the life of a disciple who is growing in the area of mission. You will be increasing your personal relationships outside of the faith community, not just to share glow tracks or things, but to actually share friendships, to love people to let, invite them into your home, to learn who they are and be friends. And then to increase the influence of the kingdom of heaven. Naturally, if you're making friends with people who are not in the kingdom, you are increasing the influence of the kingdom. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, wherever you are, there he is, right? So this is the complete picture of what it would look like to be growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. All of these areas together make a complete picture of biblical discipleship. I know that's a lot, and we smashed it in. We made it. We're 10 minutes late. But hopefully that'll give you something to think about and a way to kind of measure where you are. What are your strengths? What areas do you have some growing to do? I think probably we all have growing to do in every area. And then just think about what's your step? What's your next step that you're going to take to be more committed to your journey as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It can take a, a baby step in every one of these areas and change your life. But from wherever you are, you don't have to try to be like someone else. Wherever you are, take the next step, whatever that may be. And maybe while you're here, find someone to check in with, someone to encourage, someone who can encourage you as you're going along that journey Hopefully all of you did get these little challenge cards. Did everybody get some of these? If you didn't, I have some here. It will help you. Just get started. There's a little easy five-minute challenge for every day for 10 days. And you can take two because challenge number two is to invite someone to do that with you. Okay? So um, let's just 
pray, and then if anyone has any questions or if you want to stay by, you can, and if you need to go, you're welcome to do that because I know you have a full day today. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much again that you have left a record of your love for us in the scripture. And I thank you that every time we come to the scripture, there's something new and refreshing for us to find there, fresh air for us to breathe in and to give us life. And Lord, each of us is a disciple somewhere along our journey and our relationship with you. We just pray that you would help us to take the next step, whatever that step is that you would have us take. Please make it clear to us, Lord. Help us to evaluate the most important area of growth in our lives and help us to trust you to lead us in the right direction. Thank you for this time, for this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.